Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast for shining a light on bright ideas. Today, I am so excited for the guest that you get to meet. Dr. Peter Fader is on. He is a professor of marketing at Wharton. Yeah, small business school. That, I mean, amazing. Um, he's got an incredible background in marketing. He's got a really, really cool book that we're going to talk about all around customer centricity. So if you're in the consumer product space, if you're in retail, or you're in anything around that, you're, I think you're really going to find value in the conversation that we have today. So Dr. Fader, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Justin, it's great to chat with you. I'm so glad you're here, um, and it's so good to meet you. I have to say, I was, like I said, I, in doing my homework on you, I, I was so excited uh, that you were going to spend time with us today. Um, let's do this. Uh, for those that may not know you, how about share a little bit of your background, your path, um, before we get to your current role at Wharton and marketing in your book? Sure thing. So, of course, the, the current role has been going on for 35 years, but... <laughs> My goodness. But it's I was crazy. a math major at MIT. I'm just a number cruncher. I'm just a nerdy. I'm, I'm that guy who likes, you know, math trivia and stuff like that. Uh, they usually end up either on Wall Street or working for as an actuary for an insurance company. But I had this one professor said, you ought to get a PhD in marketing. And I said, you ought to get your head checked in <laughs> right. marketing. A numbers guy in marketing? <laughs> exactly. And this was 35 years ago. And, and this is my this is my fairy godmother, Lee McAllister. She's a professor at UT Austin. And she made me do this. And boy, oh <laughs> boy, am I glad I did. Uh, so for 35 years of Wharton, I've been building predictive models, things like how many customers will we acquire and how long will they stay and how often will they buy and how much will they spend to really understand those patterns and what it all means and how companies can actually not just understand, but leverage those patterns to have better relationships with customers, make more money and stand out from the crowd. I, I love it. I, I'm so glad that, I mean, just your what you're doing is such in the sweet spot for so many companies and guests that come on the show. And uh, it's just perfect. So let me ask you this. So the first thing that many think uh, they were like, wait, Justin said he's the professor of marketing. He's saying he's a numbers guy. And what I found in working for big brands is, yeah, in fact, there's more numbers in the marketing than the, the fluffy agency work. Talk a little bit about what marketing is today. It's so true. So let me go back to, again, my fairy godmother. Uh, when Ali when McAllister was talking me into doing this for a living, this is, again, early 1980s. She's saying, we are inventing the, the electron microscope of the customer. We're going to understand so much at the granular level. So instead of just obsessing over overall sales volumes and market shares and the stuff that was the only thing we could know back then, we're going to really know who's buying what, when, and again, how can we use that information about them to both build better relationships, make more money, and it's amazing that when you have that kind of visibility into how customers differ from each other, how they change over time, how they respond to different kinds of offers or not, uh, that it really does change a lot of the conventional wisdom that we have about marketing. So yeah, I'm a math guy, 
Uh, yeah, I'm a marketer, but I'm also kind of a renegade to try to really raise the overall quantitative literacy of marketing to get people just to, to better understand what's really happening as opposed just to, to following the same old playbook. I love it. I'm a data and analytics guy by background. I'm an industrial engineer, but I love like the customer side of things and marketing. So um, talk about the industry around when we talk about customer centricity. And in my world, it's retail and consumer products. So and, and a lot of your work, I think, think has been there as well. Talk about what's changed over the last couple of years, especially to give marketers better insight so they can drive decisions. I think I could summarize a lot of those changes through one word or one phrase, customer lifetime value. So three words that if, if I uh, you know, mentioned them to you 20 years ago, I mean, you might have appreciated them, but but most of your listeners would say, what? what what's that? <laughs> what's that? And, and even if we explained it to them, they wouldn't believe it. The idea of saying, what will be the future value of this customer? How long will they stay? How often will they buy? How much will they spend? We can really do that. We can quantify that over long horizon at a granular level and do it in a really accountable way. I will tell you the value of those customers, and then you could come see me five years from now and I'll probably be right. And if I'm not right, I'll at least have a good understanding of why I was wrong. Uh, you know, was there a, a COVID thing going on? You know, and, and how much did that influence what the uh, what the sales revenue profitability might have been? Uh, so customer lifetime value. For, I mean, for me, this is a lot of the research that I do is refining these kinds of methods and trying to get people to actually believe them and use them. And then to go the next step beyond just the, the quantitative number crunching, which is what I really like. That's <laughs> right. To talk much about the, about the so what. So to, to talk about things like loyalty programs and retention programs and customer service and the tactical stuff. That doesn't necessarily on the surface have anything to do with the math, but really should be closely tied in with it. So I love that. So you get to see a lot of companies. I know you work with many of them. Um, again, based on my research on you and some of the, the things you've done in the past, what have you seen from the best companies that are really using the numbers to drive decisions and those that are not? Okay, is there are fundamental like mechanisms or structures around the, the best out there or, and, and the others that lack it? What are you seeing? Absolutely. So the ones who are the best, and one of the companies, there's, there's many out there, but one of those that I love to talk about is Electronic Arts, the gaming company. Every single day, they're looking at what games you're playing, for how long, are you making any micropayments or not? And at the end of the day, they're updating their prediction of your lifetime value. They're doing this for a billion customers wow. every single day. So having, first of all, the infrastructure to do that, just the, the, the sheer technical capabilities to do those calculations, having the culture to do that, uh, having the broad enterprise-wide buy-in. So it's not just the nerdy folks in analytics, but even the folks in on sales and supply chain and R&D, they care just as much. So to create the, that that kind of alignment, uh, that the kind of you know broad language from the CEO on down uh, around this way of looking at the company and the customer base. So that's the best is when you have again the data, the technology, the culture, the alignment. It's hard to get all that. Sure. Uh, now on the other hand, you're going to have a lot of companies 
Fewer every day, I'm pleased to say, but still far too many of them. Or I'll go to them and I'll bring them these tools. I'll say, look, here are the models. They work really well. Here's, here's code and here's spreadsheets and here's videos and here's case studies. Go, go use it. Right. And too often I'll be talking to the CMO and they'll say something like, well, you know, sure, you can talk to the nerds and analytics and see if you can win them over. But I'm the CMO and I need to focus on the brand. Right. <laughs> And I need to focus on which celebrity we're going to get for our Super Bowl ad. And, you know, that's the important stuff. And all that number stuff, yeah, that's nice, but it's secondary. Right. Um, I'm trying to change that conversation to try to make that kind of response more exception than rule. Um, come a long way. I have to say, over the, the, the 10 years since I started writing books on this stuff, uh, there's still a long way to go. Yeah. The, so with some of the companies I work with, I see more and more of the, I'll, I'll say the analytic or the numbers um, individuals, skill sets and, and whatnot in marketing, in sales, in the shopper insight space, in consumer insights. And in again, in my world, consumer products, retail, like you're seeing more embedded talent like that in those organizations. And I think that is to help drive some of the more insights driven approach. Oh, no doubt. And it's kind of ironic that especially in the CPG world, which had always been the most data driven. I was born and raised in the CPG world myself because Back then, it was the only source of data you can get before there was an internet. Um, yet, the, so the, the sad irony is that the kind of data that the CPG firms, CPG firms get isn't nearly as, as rich and granular as what the, say, directed consumers get. Uh, yet, they have wonderful analytic horsepower. If, if we could only bring it together, take kind of the smarts of a CPG with a lot of just the data at the fingertips of a D to C and just bring it together, the world would be a much better place. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do is to cherry pick the best of both worlds and make that kind of combination. I love that. Um, you've got a, a book out that I, I really enjoyed checking out, Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage. Talk a little bit about the book. And um, I want to dive into a couple elements of it before we get to our Black Friday discussion. Sure. So uh, basically, uh, coming up with these models, seeing how well they work, understanding their implications for companies. Uh, and I'd go to them and say, here's the code, here's the case studies, here's the spreadsheet, and they'd ignore me. So I needed to find <laughs> another way. I wasn't going to win them over just from the kind of the, the technical stuff. And that's why I started writing these books. So the, the one you mentioned is the first one. That's kind of the, the, the definition, the motivation, like why you should really be doing this, why it's different than the traditional product-centric approach and why you can make more money in a sustainable, defendable, ethical way by understanding the differences across your customers. Instead of aiming right down the middle, hoping that the average customer likes it, it's like, no, most of your customers are not very good. Most of your customers are going to buy once a year and there's not much you can do about that. But if you can figure out what who those customers are who love you and will go through the gates of hell to stay with you sure. and how to build tighter relationships around them and how to use them as the guide for R&D and different kinds of marketing programs, that's what I'm talking about. That's when I say customer centricity. I'm not talking about centering ourselves around each and every customer because that sounds nice, but it's not practical. But you can't, who right. are the customers we should be centered around? Who are the customers we're going to give that special treatment to? Who are the customers that we're going to have top of mind when it's time to develop the next product, when it's time to do partnerships with other firms? 
we can't do that for everybody. Let's do it for the best ones. Love it. Yeah. And you're right. Uh, that was your first book. I mentioned the second book, The Customer Centricity Playbook, Implement a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Values. You've been talking about, talks a lot about bringing that to life. Um, share with us some of the elements of this. Like, for example, I know one of the things you talk about is tuning retention and development tactics. Another one is around looking at your CRM strategy. Just give us some of the inside modeling that you provide to the readers. Sure. So it start, It all starts with CRM. It starts with not just the ability, but the passion, the priority to tag and track each and every customer from the moment they're born, from the, when they first show up on, on your <laughs> nice. radar, maybe even before you acquire them, you know, when they're still in the acquisition funnel, to start doing some of that tagging and tracking and knowing how difficult it is to make those investments. So first of all, to, to have a real good idea about what you're going to do with that data once you have it, instead of just saying, well, once we collect it, we'll figure it out. No. Um, and secondly, to get broad buy-in across the organization. A lot of the work that I've been doing more recently has been on the idea of customer-based corporate valuation. Interesting. Let's went over the CFO before we even Ooh. talk to the CMO. If Love we it. can show the CFO that we can do a better job of forecasting revenue over a longer horizon, uh, then that's going to give us lots of buy-in, lots of cover, lots of resources to then build those CRM systems, to execute those marketing campaigns, and to be held accountable on them. So it starts with CRM, and again, viewing it as an investment, not a cost. And then it's knowing what you're going to do with the data, knowing what kinds of predictive models you're going to build, and understanding what kinds of programs you're likely going to go with instead of, again, just trying to figure it out on the fly. One of the things you also talk about is how customer centricity plays into corporate valuation. I was very intrigued by that, and it's something that most people don't think about. But talk about how that plays out in terms of the corporate world. I got to tell you, it's been super amazing, Justin. So actually, let me back up a little bit because let me talk about some of my uh, startup activity. You know, I took a lot of these models uh, back in 2015. Again, more or less frustrated because companies weren't using <laughs> they weren't them. Doing they weren't it. so well. Um, you know, lead the horse to water, but I got to get that thing to drink. So I started up company number one, a company called Zodiac, to bring customer lifetime value to life at full commercial scale. Uh, and it worked. It was great. So we worked with lots of retailers and travel and hospitality and gaming and pharmaceuticals and telcos, a wide variety of firms that were starting to wake up and smell the CLV and showing them what those numbers look like, talking to them about the tactics that arise from them, the accountability and so on. And that was great. It was it was wonderful, not only to, to do that, to take my academic work and, and bring it to life, but then we sold that company to Nike. Wow. Which by itself was an incredible outcome. Unbelievable. Yeah, not only in terms of just a, a, you know the kind of exit that any entrepreneur dreams of, but also the validation that it provided. So, so many other companies saying, well, wait a minute, CL what? What was that thing? <laughs> what customer Maybe I should be what? doing that. <laughs> right. Uh, and so that was great. Uh, and then right after selling Zodiac to Nike, started company number two with one of my former PhD students and my co-founder from Zodiac, a gentleman named Dan McCarthy. Uh, so he and I founded the new company called Theta, like the Greek letter, Theta. Uh, and basically, it's the same stuff, at least the same models, but aimed a little bit more on those financial applications. Got it. So let's work with a private equity firm thinking of buying that digitally native women's cosmetics company. What's that company going to be worth? And our view is 
if we can project, here we go again, how many customers are going to acquire and how long they're going to stay and how often they're going to spend and what they're going to spend when they do, that we can do a better job than the usual you know, multiples or ratios or whatever that, that people come up with. We're going to do it very precisely, very accountably with all the nice tactical stuff to follow. So let's start with finance. So whether it's work with private equity firms or directly with companies, basically to show them all that customer value, all that gas in the tank, and then give them some ideas about how best to leverage it. Man, oh man, it's just been great to try to win over that side of the organization. Amazing. Yeah. And um, it's it's neat how you've had this balance of entrepreneurship and like corporate, you know, in, in terms of in bring, bringing that to life in your teaching. Um, one of the areas you've really focused on when you think about customer centricity is retail. And a lot of our listeners are either in the consumer products world or retail. Um, and You've really given a lot of thought to Black Friday, and it's an interesting one this year. And I, I wanted to get your take on where's the customer today in this industry, and what are you expecting as we get towards the back half of this year? Yeah, Justin, you know, it's, it's so sad that I've given a lot of thought to Black Friday. I right. wish I didn't have to think about it at all. Right. I wish it didn't exist. <laughs> uh, Black Friday is a just, for the most part, is a terrible, terrible thing. To, to kind of to be a little snarky to overstate it, <laughs> just, just a little. Basically, it is the day, it is the weekend when you find all of your worst customers and treat them like royalty. Uh, all of those customers <laughs> who are waiting outside the store for that big blockbuster bargain palooza oh discount thing who haven't been there since the previous year's Black Friday and probably aren't coming back until next year's. Um, why are we treating them so well? Why are we giving them all this special stuff and being so harsh on our employees? Uh, and when ironically, some of the best, best customers, the ones who do go through the gates of hell to stay with us, uh, you know, they're, they're nowhere to be seen. They don't want any part <laughs> right. of it. So why don't we use Black Friday instead of rewarding the worst customers, use it to reward the best ones instead. Uh, and it's so simple. I think it's so obvious but so many companies just kind of follow the same way they've been doing it for decades. I think what's going on now with COVID, I think, is a tremendous opportunity for change. Uh, and I really hope that some of the changes that we're seeing uh, are going to be more permanent. But I got to tell you, I'm not that optimistic. <laughs> so um, what would what would change look like, you know, from a company perspective? Would it be... Um, a focus on the right customers for the right deals, right time during holiday versus peanut butter spread. What's your thought? Exactly. It is. So, so it's going to be, it shows up in a lot of different ways. So yeah, we're going to maybe open up this, the, the doors at midnight or whatever. Maybe there's no <laughs> stopping that. But let's make sure we hold back some of that inventory and trying to sell it all out first. Um, let's hold some of it back for those really good customers who don't want to be waiting online. The ones who really kind of deserve it. Not that we're going to give them anything for free, Okay, I'm not saying it's all about discounts at all. In fact, they might even be willing to pay a premium. That's a whole other story. Um, but to contact those customers and say, look, you know, you've been so good. Um, you know, we got some stuff for you and only for you. Or, and or why not have special hours just for them? So for the members of, you know, you do the loyalty program and you have your president's red carpet, gold medal club or whatever you call it. Why not have special hours for them where not only will it be more, you know, sane shopping experience, but we can be a little bit more personalized. We can focus a little bit more on the customer experience besides all the transactions that take place. I think there's so many ways to do it. 
But so many companies are just fixated on selling as much stuff as they can to make those quarterly numbers, as opposed to trying to elevate lifetime value, which ultimately is more important. I love that. As you uh, look forward, even um, as you think about your classes uh, that you're teaching um, and the content you're you're bringing to life, what are some of the trends you're seeing over the next, I'd say, six to 12 to 18 months that you think are going to be important that are new tactics, new ways to think about leveraging information to drive competitive advantage in the marketing space? Yeah. So let me take you back six, 12, 18 months. Uh, there's this thing called COVID. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> um, now, of course, let, let's face it. It's a terrible, terrible tragedy. But I actually thought back in March of 2,500 years ago when it all started, right. I thought this was going to be a game changer because all of a sudden people were using apps, people were ordering online, people, you know, all the technology stuff, and which goes hand in hand with the CRM. The problem is that, and it's an understandable problem, the companies have been so fixated just on trying to stay afloat uh, that instead of taking advantage of all that rich, delicious online data, data yeah. that they really never had before, they've been so focused on you know um, uh, curbside pickup and stuff right. like that, which was absolutely necessary as we go through the crisis, but isn't isn't really transformative, isn't a growth strategy by itself. True. So I was kind of hoping that while we're you know bailing water and keeping the ship afloat, that we'd also be investing in this ever richer, more detailed, better data. Uh, and too many companies, uh, instead of trying to invest while bailing, they kind of you know <laughs> pivoted towards all the curbside stuff. So I think companies now, now that we're sort of getting back on track, now have the opportunity to be doing what they were doing a year ago, which is kind of doubling down on the digital and really looking for the insights there, not just as a way to you know supplement the brick and mortar sales numbers, but to go beyond it, to really start to understand how customers differ from each other, lifetime value, uh, and then how that can spill over to the in real life experience as well. I really want to see some of the, the online activities driving the in-store activities. Again, it's been a little slower to happen than I'd like, but I think it's, it's it really is just a matter of time. Sure. Yeah, you're right. I, I think, uh, first of all, a lot of retailers don't have the analytics staff even to, to manage the data they have. And then all of a sudden, in, influx of new data. And then on the consumer product side, yeah, a lot of many of them launched direct-to-consumer platforms, for example. And now, yeah, new data, not prepared not prepared to do something with it and integrate it with everything else. So I think it will be interesting. Yeah, we'll see some catch-up here. And then you're right, next six, 12 months. I'm interested to see who does something with that data. Yeah, and let me go back to, to my Nike story, because if you think about it, even though you don't think about Nike as a traditional CPG firm. Oh, I know, do. For, <laughs> Manufacturer. But, but exactly. <laughs> they they were just selling boxes of shoes to Foot Locker and Walmart. They had no visibility into who was buying them and how they were using them. In that sense, they were no different than you know Unilever or Campbell Soup. Totally. And Nike said... We're going to change that. We want to control our own destiny. We want to control our own relationships. This was their, their, their previous CEO, Mark Parker. He said, this is what we're going to be all about. Uh, and that's why they bought my company, was to really understand, not only to collect that data, but understand the value of it. I think every firm can do the same thing. And we are seeing a number of, of more traditional CPGs starting to move in that direction, trying to get people to join the loyalty program, use the mobile app, 
give them opportunities to register and raise their hand when they're buying or using the products. I just want to see more companies doing that, doing it more aggressively and doing it for the right reasons, not just collect data for, well, I don't know, but to know <laughs> what they're going to do with it. Because I think that Nike story, again, should be more rule than exception. I know you didn't come here to um, necessarily sell books or what you know you're programming but i'm interested um if if the people are listening to our podcast going man i, I want to are there classes are there courses that dr fader teaches that i can jump in i mean like i need to become more of an expert in the space and i'm not like how could, how should they be thinking about getting more engaged with you or your content well, let me give you three three ways to do it. So there are the books out there, and you mentioned them, the Customer Centricity and the Customer Centricity Playbook. Yes, great reviews very on Amazon, simple, by the way. Yeah, very really great. simple, lightweight paperbacks, read the whole thing in one sitting, but doesn't really do justice to all the models underneath. It's kind of like a facade, a Trojan horse. You want to learn about the models, I have a couple of free online courses through Coursera. One of them's on the broad customer centricity stuff, and one of them's on more of the analytical models. So I highly recommend those. And then I mentioned company number two, Theta. If you go to thetaequity.com, uh, we have lots and lots of content posted there, lots of blog posts and case studies and, and, and just ways to better understand the models, but especially how to get the CFO to better appreciate the models. Like I said before, knowing that I am a marketing guy and ultimately that's what I care about. But if we can create that kind of alignment within the organization. So it's nice to see the way that we'll take some of this work and, and put it out there in somewhat financy accounting language. On one hand, it, it couldn't seem more different than some of the traditional marketing stuff that I, that I mentioned, but, but there really is tight alignment there. And if we can really create that within the companies as well, it's a wonderful win-win. And I love that. This has been so great. Um, I appreciate you being here today. I think we could talk for a couple hours um, on these topics, and I love it. Share with our audience where they can find you, connect with you, um, and whatnot. So Google my name. Or just <laughs> go to, go to yeah. PeteFader.com. You'll find my academic webpage there. Yep. Uh, again, again, but go, go to, to, to ThetaEquity.com for, for, for the, the content that you'd probably care more about than all those academic papers. But it's important to know that some of that academic stuff, it has a lot of math, a lot of Greek letters in it. It's really easy to look at and, and dismiss it as a bunch of ivory tower claptrap. Um, but a lot of that stuff really is practical. And a lot of companies, whether they're working with me or just finding it on their own, have been finding great use out of those models. Maybe it's 20 years too late, but better late than never. I love it. I think it's it's more important now than ever because technology has caught up. The analytic models have caught up. Like there's people and their skills have caught up. Like I, there's it's such an interesting opportunity and time for change in marketing. I'm excited about it. Yeah, Justin, you know, that is a good point because back in the day, even though the models were out there, you're right. The data wasn't rich enough. Our analytical capabilities to even run these models wasn't good enough. Um, so with everybody starting up on, you know, Shopify or through, you know, their own Amazon FBA approach, <laughs> right. um, I, I think really reading this stuff and thinking about it and baking it into the business model, uh, I think is, is, is really important and really feasible. 
I love it. So Dr. Peter Fader, thank you so much for being here today. Please, I would like to have you back on um, down the road, maybe like a couple months out, maybe get through holiday and revisit some of the, the models with you and go into even more detail. Maybe we can get even more technical for those that might want to go a little more tech. You know what I mean? If, you, if you'll come back, I'd love to have you do Justin, that. Justin, I, I appreciate that. That <laughs> means a lot to me. It would be I awesome. would love to do it. So, right. uh, but first things first, let's let people get through this one <laughs> and see if they really have an appetite for more. Oh, I hope they so. will. <laughs> Thanks for being here, though. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Take care, Justin. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at ContenderCast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.